Hey everybody, welcome to Rock and Roll Shinsu Chu. My name is Gabe Estel. I'm here with your co-host, Dennis Levi Leach and Jonathan Getz. How's it going, guys? We're popping collars at the top all of the right. list. Yes, this is the moment you've all been waiting for. <laughs> all right, the culmination of, of 11 months of work. <laughs> um, 72 months. Yes, yes. In a lifetime the ago. World, no, Honestly. not kidding. The world is a completely different place than when Because we of this list. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> The two things that this podcast mainly are about have been completely changed within the last They came to months. a complete halt there for a few months. <laughs> Waiting on our every word. Yes. Yes. So I don't know. Maybe this is this is the, the thing that turns the tide and you know, Friday's headline reads like vaccine announced. You know? <laughs> we, we finally um, finished our, our hundred episode, right? Yeah, Who Trump, knew? Trump, Trump leaves early. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's let's just hope this turns the tide. Of, uh, oh, episode one hundred, part nine, as Levi alluded yes. to. Yes. <laughs> All right, folks. So we're gonna go ahead and I'm gonna go ahead and get into it. Uh, again, we are. If you have, if you're new to this, we have been counting down the hundred in celebration of our hundredth episode, which was in 2019. Um, we have been counting down the 100 things about baseball and music um, that are important to us, right? So um, mine are not in sequential order, uh, although my co-host, for the most part, seems to be those are in sequential order. Yeah, like, um, my last three are pretty important. I don't know if they're, like, you know, my yeah. most important. But, yeah, right. I'll save three pretty good ones here. Cool. All right. So, uh, again, I want to remind everybody, uh, before we get started, you can check out all of the episodes at rockchew.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at rockinchew. That's in as in um, um, the new no, Regal Theater. The new Regal Theater. Later. Yes, which was which was referenced um, or will be referenced. Um, so yeah, check that out. Uh, also, you can like us on Facebook and. Uh, you can. There's many ways to listen to us. Just go to rockchew.com. There's links to several different ways to listen to us. You can also find us on your favorite podcast app. All right, go ahead and get started, guys. Uh, who, who kicks it off? Lisa, it, I'm going to uh, start tonight. Levi, um, Levi, please. Yeah. So uh, my item, my first one for the night, is something that I know you two both enjoyed as well as me as a child. Um, and so to give a little backstory on this, in 1980. In Portland, Oregon, there was a minor league baseball team called the Portland Mavericks. And they were owned by a guy named Bing Russell, who was Kurt Russell's dad. And so for a short little while, Kurt Russell actually played on the team as a minor leaguer, trying to break into the leagues. But um, I'm going to fast forward a little to 1980. And in 1980, on the Portland Mavericks, there was a left-handed pitcher named Rob Nelson. Mm-hmm. And Rob and the Bat Boy, whose name is Todd Field, who later went on to become a child actor and like he acted in his 20s and some stuff. And then now he's like an Academy Award winning filmmaker. Hmm. Um, Todd Field. Okay. Todd Field. And so, yeah, Rob Nelson and Todd Field, they're sitting in the dugout at Portland Mavericks and they're watching the other players like spit their tobacco out. Mm -hmm. And they're like, you know, what could we do? 
you know, we don't like tobacco. Obviously, the one the one person is a kid. And so they're like, what if we took bubble gum and shredded it up and put it in pouches? Mm-hmm. And you could be cool like the ball players, and that's how Big League Chew was born. <laughs> ah! Nice. And so on the team in 1980 was Jim Bouton, the author of Ball Four, who right. we've talked about before. Famous book, yeah. And um, Jim Bouton heard about the idea from Rob, and he's like, "I could market that. We should try this." And so Rob Nelson, in the back of a People magazine, I think it was, he said. It was like this make your own bubble gum kit. And so he ordered a case of them. And so they were delivered and they took them to Todd Fields' parents' house. Mm-hmm. So Todd Fields' mom let him make up these batches of gum in their kitchen. And so they ended up with like a product that was like in sheets that they had to bake. And then they would come out of the oven and like shred it with pizza cutters, like pizza wheels. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, shred it first- being the operative. The first two flavors they did, he could only find two bottles of extract. One was a maple extract, and one was a root beer extract. So the first sample batch of Big League Chew was maple flavored or root beer flavored. Root beer I could go for. And so they made a bunch of it up and gave it to minor league players on the team. And they were like, this is a really good idea. But, like, none of them were like, these are really good tasting. <laughs> so, like, they, like, went back to the drawing board, and, you know, that's how they ended up with the original flavor. And then my personal favorite as a kid was grape. Right. I, yeah. I remember yeah. destroying some grape yeah. Big League Chew. But, um, you know, that first year in 1980, they sold $18 million worth of Big League Chew. No shit. Holy smokes. To this day, they've sold almost over 800 million pouches of it. Wow. Nice. Yeah. So do they still make it in the pouch? They do, and it's now made at one time, you know, how, how stuff like that works is. So Jim Bowden, he got it sold to like a conglomerate of Wrigley. <laughs> and uh-huh. so Wrigley later sold it to another company, and that company, I think, had moved production to like Mexico well, now a company called the Ford Gum Company, which is one of the companies that makes most of the colored gumballs, they mm-hmm. now make it, and, and it's made in New York. And so Big League Chew is made in New York, and it's <laughs> still made in pouches. <laughs> I think one of the more popular flavors now is Sour Apple. It's kind of taken over sure. as yeah. mm-hmm. one of the top flavors. But um, Original is still super popular. But I, I just, I'll never forget, crack it open a pouch of that, like yeah. at Little League or... And it was something that you could share with your buddies because it was like a huge pouch of it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It wasn't like mm-hmm. back in the day, it was like I remember gum either came in Big League Chew huge pouches or you got like a five stick pack. So it was like you never wanted to share your five stick packs. But if you, right. had, if you, if you had a, a giant pouch of shredded Big League Chew, you were like, sure, get you a dab, you know? <laughs> right. It felt like it was never going to end. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, it was. It's just classic, man. So, Big League Chew is definitely one of the things I'm thankful for. I'm a grape guy. Grapes, grapes, yeah, yeah. 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 I I think I was a watermelon guy. Yeah, I Um, remember that one. Although I always liked watermelon bubble yum. So, (laughs) yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It was pink and green. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I see they also have a cotton candy flavor, uh, curveball cotton candy. I think this is current. (laughs) I might I might have to order some of this after the show. 
Uh, I've so seen I, it around. I mean, I, I still see it once in a while. Rob uh, Nelson. Out there uh, pouch. Nice. Wherever he lives in, you know, on the East Coast, if it's in New York somewhere, he's now known at Halloween as the Big League Chew guy because they give out, like, full pouches. <laughs> like, in, on Halloween night, he said he gives out, like, three or 400 pouches of gum. Nice. Sweet. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah, man. We would always uh, go up to the. There would be the uh, concession stand at the little league field, and they would always have it in mm. stock. And so yeah, he did. Up. He never made it. Obviously, as a major league player, but he ended up still still being raking a in some cash. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're good for him. He probably would have made made more money than he would have playing baseball. Oh uh, yeah, in the early eighties, yeah. yeah. early eighties yeah. salaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right, right. Probably. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a good one. I. Um... I I think we might have to to revisit the taste of Big League Chew just to get that nostalgia feeling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Huh, good. Um, anything more, Levi, on that? No, man. All right. All right. Well, I'm gonna um, listen to my 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 third from the top, and it is also baseball um, centric, and specifically, it's um, the Royals improving one more game in 2015 to win the World Series. So. You know, since 1980, uh, just two franchises have lost the World Series one year and come all the way back to be crown champions the following year. One of these teams was the 88-89 Oakland A's, who lost the World Series to the Dodgers in 88, then beat the Giants in 89. The other franchise is the Kansas City Royals, who lost Game 7 of the 2014 World Series to the Giants, but returned the following year to beat the Mets for their first title in 30 years. So through... Uh, Though the Royals' 2014 run to the title ultimately fell short, this new era of civic pride nonetheless galvanized Kansas City. Murals were painted on buildings, and boutique Kansas City t-shirts became ubiquitous in the rising hipster community and well, well beyond. And a city reveled in the glory, not just of a competent product playing again at Kauffman, but a legitimately exciting and superior brand of baseball. They made the World Series two years in a row. And so nevertheless, but... The lost championship scar for life. I, Levi, you probably relate to this. I still think mm-hmm. about Super Bowl Forty One on like a weekly basis. <laughs> that was when our Chicago Bears lost to the Colts. And you know yeah. what went wrong? What if Daniel Manning didn't botch his coverage on that long TD pass by Peyton Manning? No relation. As, t- as but as time <laughs> passes, you know the pain can be magnified if, like the Bears, a team flounders in the years following a runner-up finish. It, that oh, yeah. may have been like my best chance, Levi, our best chance at watching <laughs> our favorite sport. I'm sorry, my favorite sports team, at least, to yeah. see them win a championship. And I was only six years old, five years old when the Bears won in 85, so that doesn't count. So, Not really, yeah. So when the Royals lost the 2014 World Series, as you can imagine, there was a similarly disappointed group of fans who were worried that may have been the best chance they'll have for another 30 years, you know? So sure, most of the players would return in 2015 and maybe they can put together another run, but so often in sports championships are the result of just catching lightning in a bottle. And lightning really strikes the same team twice. But when the Royals returned to the 2015 World Series against the New York Mets, the city was even more united in this uniquely shared experience. And this franchise, which had been the laughing stock of baseball for decades, 
was on the verge for the second year in a row of doing something unthinkable just a few years before. The lessons learned in 2014 were simply that nothing was guaranteed. You know, oh. no matter how much of a Cinderella story you felt you were in. Uh, and since most experts were picking the Mets to win the World Series that year, Kansas City couldn't rightfully hold m much more than a quiet confidence that 2015 would be the year the Royals would get that fourth win necessary to clinch the series. And not only did the Royals get that final win needed to be crowned champions, but they did it in far less dramatic fashion than most expected, dominating the Mets to win the series in just five games. Heck, even the, the drama of extra innings of the clinching game five was shot to hell when the Royals scored five in the top of the 12th. So after Wade Davis struck out Wilmer Flores, uh, trivia answer, for the final out, there was a dog pile on the mound in New York City and fireworks blasting off in Kansas City in short order nearly 800,000 people attending a parade and celebration near downtown Kansas City, including myself. So the, it's an overused quote, but, you know, tis better to have loved and lost and never to have loved at all is often, you know, received with scorn by heartbroken lovers and sports fans alike. Because to be at the doorstep of unbound glory and have it be taken away from you is to be gutted just like the 2014 World Series. Yet you'd put so much into that which was in front of you but is now gone and you just don't know when the opportunity will again present itself. And heck, you might not even be able to bear the thought of building up to another opportunity, going through another season, lest it break your heart again. But every once in a while, the gods shine down with a reward made all the sweeter because of those still fresh battle scars that remind you to take none of it for granted. And the Royals improving one more game in 2015 and winning the World Series. That is a top three moment for me. Right on. Um, yeah, I, ha, has there ever been a team that, like, has been that bad, got to the World Series after a very long drought, and lost and then won again? I know that's, I'm kind of getting Yeah, 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 so the idea but, of the big setup of being... Yeah, say, right, mm, right. Yeah, I don't know. I, nothing, none of, of, that I can think of in my life. It's a pretty time, specific, offhand. yeah. 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 Um, uh, but I, I, because I, Oakland, you know, they were there was a big lead up for them to be good, and obviously they were they were great in the seventies. You know, they had a dynasty in yeah. the seventies, and yeah, and so they were they weren't want for a drought um, when when they came back and oh and, right and oh right yeah because they lost in eighty eight right yeah. right they lost in eighty eight won in eighty nine lost in ninety that's that's heartbreaking too um, um, yeah three consecutive trips yeah and, um, and getting just one. Um, yeah. Like, hey, the Bills fans are like, yeah, cry me a river, or, or the Braves. <laughs> yeah, or Braves yeah. fans. Yeah, only getting right, one out of right. like four only... or five trips. Yeah, um, and plus, like what, like like twenty division titles basically for like the Braves, like yeah. from yeah, yeah. starting yeah. to yeah. yeah. nineteen ninety one on. Yeah, yeah, or nineteen ninety. Yeah, ninety one. I think or no, was it? Was about ninety one. Uh, yeah, from like ninety one to, to yeah. like two thousand something. Yeah, they won the. But, uh, yeah, the one the division every the year. Rotation really coalesced there. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, good stuff, man. I was uh, heck. They're a division opponent, and I was I was rooting for them that year, or at least uh, near the end of it all. So yeah, hard not to root for, really. If I do say yes. so myself. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Who knows, man? They might be back sooner than you know it. They seem to be kind of. They've got, they've got a few young team. Few, few parts in place. Yeah. Oh, oh, cool. All right. Um, okay, so Levi's got it. It's my turn now. Um, you know, this one is, is kind of heartbreaking. Um, 
because again, we started this thing so fucking long ago. Um, I was writing um, about, you know, I live in. I'm, I'm really lucky to um, live in. I think probably one of America's best live music cities. Um, if you look at the 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 high profile festivals we have here, as well as um, a lot of venues uh, here in Chicago. And really within probably like the last 10 years, there's been a lot of smaller venues open. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I hope they make it. Um, so I'm keeping my fingers crossed here, but I was, I was thinking of just, um, a couple of them I haven't even, there's like two of them on this list I haven't been to yet, but, um, nonetheless, these are all venues that are probably like less, like 1500 people or fewer, maybe even like 1200 or fewer. Um, and you don't get that added like in a lot of cities, like in such a concentrated period, you know? Um, so yeah, Chicago's, you know, some of the venues that have opened just within the last 10 years, um, uh, Talia hall, um, down in Pilsen, um, the promontory, which is in Hyde park, I think. And it books a lot of hip hop artists, um, which is cool that it's, it's almost a venue exclusively devoted to that. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, Concord music hall. Um, which has been on the map for a little while now. It probably, but still probably within the last 10 years. And it's, it was to the point where it was big. And that's where I saw the cult um, back about six years ago. Um, there's another one called the Chop Shop, which is uh, a really cool venue with a, a deli in the front and then <laughs> a pretty sizable music venue in the back. Um, is it so, all yeah. indoors? Yeah, it is. It is. It's in, um, it would be in Wicker Park. Uh, Bucktown area. Um, there's another one called Radius that I don't know. The website's still up, but um, it opened, I think, just early this year. Um, and you know, they had like a little wing was going to play there. They had like a you know, it was it was going to be good. I think it, it you know it held. I'd, I'd have to look at the capacity, but it was it was a little more sizable than a couple of the other ones that I mentioned. Um, so there was another one that got put on the map just this year and, you know, it was probably, I don't know, hopefully it's going to make it. Um, there's another one called Constellation, which is kind of like hosts a lot of like avant-garde jazz and comedy. Hmm. Um, and then there's another one called Avondale Music Hall, um, band I like a lot called Cadaver played there back in December. Um, and then there is, uh, Evanston, if you just travel a little north, has a great venue called Space, um, that's open with a really good restaurant, um, up front, and then a venue in the back. It's where I saw Mark Ford a few years back. Um, and then also we have a new arena too, which is probably unnecessary, but nonetheless is a, um, the Wintrust Arena. Uh, nonetheless, it's a it's a place that could draw you know bigger names as well. It's um, it's uh, it's where DePaul plays basketball. Now. Oh, that was my question. Yeah. I wondered who played yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, completely unnecessary arena. You know, like yeah. it's. I mean, like DePaul's program has been kind of in turmoil for the last you know twenty some years. Um, but it was weird because DuPaul always had the campus in the city, but they always played out at Rosemont. So, uh, I, I, yeah, so that, that probably hurt, you know, like the, the stature of the program too, you know, I mean, everybody's, everybody's got to travel, you know, to, to go to the, to the basketball games. 
Um, so yeah, so nonetheless, man, I mean, I just, I named off, got about eight or nine of them there mm-hmm. and, uh, God, you know, we, we were on a good streak until this fucking COVID thing came around, you know, <laughs> we we're adding venues left and right. And a lot of them were, were they're independent venues for the most part, aside from the arena, probably. Um, and yeah, it's, um, God, I, I felt like I was living in, uh, small venue heaven there for a while, you mm-hmm. know, yeah, Chicago's just. Um, for for some of its flaws, uh, you know, it's 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 devotion to live music is not one of them. That's for sure. So so yeah. Um, hope those venues make it. But I was when I started making this list, that was one of the things I was excited about and grateful for. Yeah, yeah it's it's yeah. definitely something that you you can't take for granted because here in Kansas City, it's. Um, you know, it's just kind of a four or five usual suspects in terms yeah. of uh, rock venues, depending on yeah. whether you want a thousand capacity, two thousand, five thousand, eight thousand, and that's it. I mean, yeah, there are other places, but for national touring acts, it's just going to be one of those few, one of those handful. Mm-hmm. And so to have that, all those options is pretty nice. It is nice, man. I mean, I, I, I don't have the number of, of venues that book uh, national touring acts in Chicago, but I, w- I would guess it's probably it's probably close to close to twenty or so. I would guess, yeah, you know, yeah. just yeah. in terms of yeah, that that, that do, um, and then and then a few sprinkled in the suburbs as well. So, how many yeah. of those have you been able to go to? Uh, of the ones that I've listed, let's see what. Uh, I've been to six of them. Wow. Yeah. 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 So are they, um, are they any different than your normal venue? You mentioned the one with the deli in, in the front. Do they offer kind of different amenities to get people? Um, I don't know about the Avondale, but, uh, or the Constellation. Um, the Constellation almost kind of looks like a black box theater kind of feel to it. Um, one really cool thing that happened there though, when it, when it first opened a couple of years ago, I guess Amy Schumer is, um, a friend of one of the owners and she did kind of like a shortly announced, you know, set for them just to kind of like as, as a, as a friend when she yeah, just right two on. years ago, so yeah, yeah. freaking superstar, right, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, that was really cool. I thought, yeah, you right know, um, yeah. And, and that's one of the high profile acts they're going to get. Um, so yeah, the others though, um, you know, Italia Hall's got a restaurant as well. Yeah. Um, so I think I think food is a draw yeah. to some. Yeah. Um, they are a little smaller, so they can still manage the food side of the house, you know, uh, mm-hmm. fairly well. Um, another one that I, I forgot to mention, um, probably about ten years ago, is City City Winery as well. Oh yeah, I've heard you mention them a few uh, times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which there's a few of those around now. There's you know, there's one in New York City. There's one in Nashville. Oh, okay. There might there might be a few others. Yeah. But yeah, the one here is great, um, and it has you actually. It's it's a little weird. Um, you can order f- food during the show, um, so which uh, we saw Mike Doty there, and I was like really close, like we were, like I could like touch his boot, you know, and I just felt really weird eating like a duck taco right there. Like I afraid it was gonna like fall <laughs> on his shoe or something. I'm like, I'm like, all right. they do, they have they did pretty good. The, every time I've been there, I get the duck tacos. They're pretty good. <laughs> Um, like, so I'm like, uh, uh, you know, and like, plus like there's a, like a girl, like, like 
one table over that was like videotaping the whole time. So like I got her on me as well. Like I don't know if the sh- the shit's on YouTube, but like I'm sure there's me like <laughs> really juice. awkwardly like trying to like yeah duck juice shooting out. I'm like why is this girl recording everything? <laughs> She's trying and, to yeah. enjoy my confit. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So so yeah, you can that yeah. I think I guess to answer your question, I think. I, I think they're starting to incorporate food more at smaller venues. Uh, that's a that's just the trend that I see just among these. Sure. Um, the place in Evanston has a really good restaurant uh, in the front as well, and um, you know they've they the place in Evanston where I saw Mark Ford is, you know, has some pretty pretty good booking. You know, they've like Steve Earls played there. Um, uh, God, who else has played there? Um, Los Lobos has played there. Um, yeah, and it's it's just it's a room, you know. It's mm-hmm. not big, mm-hmm. so okay. yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. cool, man. Good yeah. So fingers crossed, man. This yeah, shit right. This, no man, doubt. I want to see all these places thrive again. So yep. Yeah. Well, my uh, my second one for tonight is um, it, it involves something that we all owned and cherished, and that was our baseball gloves as a child. Mm. Oh, and specifically, yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit about Rawlings because at least when I was a kid, Rawlings was like the best brand. Like, you yeah. know, you you didn't want to show up to like practice with like, you know, the made in Japan glove or whatever. Stiff as like, Yeah. 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 And I mean, you know, I guess a Wilson was OK, but you I, had a Rawlings. Yeah. I had a Wilson, too, at one point. Yeah. Yeah. Rawlings was like the pinnacle for me as right. a kid. It was so industry standard. Yep. Yeah. Yes. So Rawlings was founded in St. Louis, Missouri in 1887 by what? two brothers who decided to open a sporting goods store, basically. <laughs> and so they stocked like fishing tackle and guns and like sports were coming of age like at that time kind of mm-hmm. and so like the need for equipment was kind of new and so it was like they started with like golf balls and polo balls and equipment and tennis rackets and all of that and um they got hooked up with this company in 1929 and that's the company that has supplied the leather to them since and um mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember I think it's called Horine Leather is, I think, the name of it is how you pronounce it. But um, in 1920, Bill Doak, who was a baseball player for the Cardinals, who Rawlings was supplying with gloves, he went to them and suggested that between the thumb and the first finger, there should be some kind of webbing, which is literally the basis for every baseball glove ever made. Still to this day, right? Because up to that point, it was just like it was a it was an oversized mitt, like, like yeah, yeah, it was literally right. like a glove, yeah, yeah basically. Yeah. And yeah. so yeah, yeah. Um, I just think that's so neat that a player was the one that kind of you know he gets the credit for that. It almost sounds like and, cheating to suggest that sort of thing when everybody else, right, right, yeah. right. Like and I can't so, imagine when they put that new one on, they're like, man, this glove kicks the shit out of the old one. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. They had to just been like, yes, why, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, man, just as a kid, I remember I still have one Rawlings glove, and it's a Lance Parrish catcher's mitt. Nice, nice, nice. And I remember I owned two others. One was a Dave Winfield signature Rawlings, 
and one was a Cal Ripken signature Rawlings. Mm-hmm. I always wanted a Sandberg one, but I could never find them around here. Probably hard. They probably there. sold yeah. out, or yeah. yeah, you know, they weren't in mass quantities, I guess, down here. But um, I, I think I remember getting rid of the Winfield one about ten years ago because the leather had finally kind of started to break down pretty bad because mm-hmm. I had left it in my parents' garage, which mm-hmm. is like not climate controlled. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And but I still have the Lance Parish and it's nice and like the leather soft oh, and every once nice. in a while I'll throw some conditioner on it and that was always another thing like I would my dad wore cowboy boots so like he had this whole little kit filled with Ooh. leather polishes and cleaners and perfect so like I would like sneak you know and get his little bottle of polish and like polish my glove <laughs> and so yeah nice. man Ra- Rawlings was was like the pinnacle for me as a kid yeah. Levi yeah. was the only kid on the team that played in cowboy boots as well. He's <laughs> yeah. like, screw cleats. That's how I'm going out, y'all. <laughs> going into second with the boot towards your neck. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I uh, leave. I'm really glad you you've you've brought this up because I just totally totally spaced on the idea of the ball glove because it's just so comforting. To put it on, like I, I still have mine from the last time I played organized baseball in in junior high or high school, and just to put it on and just to sit there and just like to throw the ball into it, yeah. and um, just to just to have it on is so comforting and and um, still soft, even though I haven't conditioned it in a while. But I've always kept it indoors or in my trunk, which probably isn't great. But um, I remember my first one. Well, it was my brother's. It was a Reggie Jackson Rawlings. Nice. It was kind of orange. It was very. It was a very orange glove, mm. um, yeah. as opposed to the more tan you get now or the dark brown you get now. Yeah, it, there was a time where my Cal Ripken one was kind of that was orange. It? Okay. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then then it moved on to I had a I think it was a Wilson Cal Daniels glove, and okay. then after that I replaced nice. that with my my Rawlings Steve Avery glove, which is the one I still have, which is my go to for. Well, Steve Avery had a glove. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, oh. in, 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 in Levi, you mentioned the idea of you know, like getting who, who, what, which signature did you get? And and yeah, I, I think like you would like search around to maybe find your favorite player, but it quickly was like not an option. You just had to settle right, yeah, for, yeah. It for Steve Avery. In Central Illinois. It was <laughs> like I, I, I gotta got to look up now, like who got gloves? You know, like who got signature gloves? Yeah, I, I'm just yeah. curious how many it is. You right? know, oh, yeah. quite a few yeah. people like. I would have never thought Cal Daniels had a signature. Yeah, right. right. Seriously, huh? yeah, it was black. Too. I mean, he was a diamond. It, it was King, a black glove. It was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Nin- 1988 diamond. Yeah, King, I believe. Yeah. Um, I, I have a nice Wilson. Yeah. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. yeah. I was a Wilson George Brett. I had. Oh Ooh, yeah, so he was a was very my... popular Wilson model. They yeah. sold a lot yeah. of George Brett Wilson. Yeah. 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 So. Um, yeah, it was. It, I still got it. It's still at my folks. Um, I'm hoping like. Barrett's been digging playing baseball over the just the two of us over the um, over the COVID period. There's a plus like I live just like three houses down from a park with two diamonds um, and nice. nobody's ever on them. So uh, Barrett and I go down there. So I'm hoping like we can go to the used sporting goods store and I can get him one. And then I'm, I'm going to get a new glove to, or an old new glove. Yeah. Right, a new nice. old glove. I should say. Yeah. Sorry. Well, now they come yes. broken in, too. Yeah. Right. Um, right. Because when you would when you would buy them new back in the day, you would have to you'd have to like get a softball. You would yeah. I would steal one of my sister's oh, yeah. softballs and you put wrap that in there up. and you wrap it up and <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it took a while to break that in, but man, nothing feels like a, like a broken in ball glove. Oh yeah, that Lance oh, yeah. Parrish catcher's mitt, man, Oof. is just like silky. It's oh, just like yeah, uh, I love it. I love it. Yeah, that's great. So yeah, all right, Rawlings, here, here. So I, uh, my next item uh, actually touches upon on Gabe's uh, item, and that uh, regarding uh, venues and and Chicago and. And uh, specifically, uh, this was a moment in my life where I, I walked into the theater lobby of my first concert. And um, so shortly after I joined the Pearl Jam fan club in 93 or 94, I received a relatively innocuous mailing from the band and a standard bill-sized envelope. And inside was an invitation to buy tickets for a fan club-only show at Chicago's New Regal Theater. And my mom and I carefully reviewed it, trying to determine if it was real. As it was just a folded 8.5 by 11 Xerox sheet with payment instructions and a modest map of the theater's location in relation to oh. I-90 on Chicago's south side. So after a couple of days, my mom essentially said, screw it, and stuffed a check in the envelope, and we sent off for the tickets. <laughs> and how cool is that, right? And so over the next... Oh, by the way, I'm 14 at the time. Um, so over over the next few weeks, there was a lot of anticipation as we sifted through, sifted fruitlessly through the mail. Uh, but sure enough, several weeks later, the tickets arrived and the concert was set for March 13th, 1994. Pearl Jam was going to be my very first concert. And I was, I was fortunate that my parents let me go to a concert four hours away as a 14-year-old. But it worked out as my older brother, Sean, a relatively seasoned vet of concert going, uh, could take me for what I think was his second time seeing the band. At least second time. He had seen him at, seen him at Marquette uh, before. But... But the more I envisioned the day unfolding, the very concept of attending seemed like entering another plane of existence. I was going to be in the same room as this band that I'd grown obsessed with over the past couple of years. And honestly, to my still developing brain, this didn't seem completely possible. And up to, up to now, this was a band that only existed in my Sony CD player or on MTV. And But the day arrived and, and we made the, the road trip up to Chicago, I... I remember we parked simply enough in a lot across the street from the new Regal. And when we walked through the doors of the theater, I was initially struck by the incredibly ornate Middle Eastern decor. And I thought, whoa, is, is every concert venue like this? No, it turns out. Um, but more than that, I remember feeling this buzz in the crowd as we filed into the lobby shoulder to shoulder. And sure, I knew that Pearl Jam had sold millions of records, but suddenly Pearl Jam was no longer a band that me and my brother and my friends, you guys, all obsessed over. And concerts, it turns out, are very personal experiences in very, very communal settings. And I honestly hadn't considered that in like the mental preparation for the day. This was this was my band, but it was also like everybody's band. As we milled about the lobby, I, I bumped into my first merch booth. And I was just dumbfounded as I saw T-shirts available that I'd never seen at the mall or in Hit Parader. <laughs> and 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 with the requisite tour dates on the back, nothing could better document my experience and validation as a truly fortunate Pearl Jam fan. And even before I forked over the twenty bucks, I already knew I'd be wearing the shirt with the puppet with freak emblazoned across his chest. I'd wear <laughs> it on the way home tomorrow. I'd wear it the next day at school, and I'd probably wear it twice a week after that. So overall, my memory of the concert is jagged at best. I think like most concert experiences, the multi-sensory overload can inhibit extended memories from forming. But I remember our seats, the openers, much of Pearl Jam's set and encore, just kind of all in the abstract. And 
it was all amazing and overwhelming, of course. But when I think back on the day, it's the excitement of entering the venue and standing in that lobby and understanding, you know, what the concert going experience is all about that fills my memory, knowing in hindsight, I'd, I'd get to experience that again hundreds of times over the coming decades. But none really like that. You know, I was a 14 year old with a new t-shirt of my favorite band and I was about to go see my favorite band do that thing it does on the stereo and, and on MTV but it was going to be right in front of me and everybody else in attendance but really you know, I knew it was all just for me nice oh. well put man and you're so lucky to see them there dude too like um, I still like obviously it was, that club was fan that show was fan club only right mm-hmm. yeah right because didn't they like play chicago stadium like the next night or something like that yeah something like that it was the beginning of that tour yeah. okay yeah yeah um yeah and just that they chose that space too because like I- i've told you i mean i've that that venue is it's it's, a, it's been a church for a mm-hmm. while um and the rumors that like jay-z was gonna buy it for mm-hmm. a little bit as well um jay-z or Kanye, i think was gonna buy it uh, I don't know if that that came to fruition, but um, I've I've lived here since I've lived here for 18 years now, almost, and uh, I've never heard of another concert there. Sure, yeah. yeah. So yeah, the fact that you got to see Pearl Jam there, geez, yeah, yeah. wow, yeah, it was a, it was a fairly popular venue like back I think in the in the 60s and 70s with primarily black artists. Yeah, um, right. And uh, and then yeah, it started to kind of peter out in the '90s, I think. And and Pearl Jam was one of the last hurrahs, yeah. and certainly one of like one of the only rock, uh, big big rock shows to be. Yeah, there. I'd love to know like how the venue selection went down and everything. That's right. It's yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. that's really something. Yeah, yeah. to see. Yeah. There. I think someday yeah. I'll make a pilgrimage back there and just like I don't know, just go sit in front of the video sure. and look at it. Sure. Right, and, right, uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think back and but yeah, if if you Google it, um you see amazing photos of that lobby. Um I don't know if those are current condition photos or from 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 the high times, but um it is it is wonderfully ornate and there are a fair share of ornate theaters out there, the Fox Theater, etc. Um but this is right up there with them, man, and it's just surprising, like you said, that there isn't more that happens there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good stuff. That's that's a hell of a first show to see too. Not to I tell you, man. Cool. Yeah, I like a, a, a giant band. You know, I like um, yeah. in a small venue. Yep. Uh, yeah. 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 No, that was that one. That was a, that's a special one. Yep. Definitely. Definitely. Um. Okay. Uh, I guess it's me. Now, yeah. Right? It's you. Is it? That's okay. You. Cool. All right. Um. Well, you know, with this one. Um, I've, this one kind of has a little bit of an arc to it with, um, the evolution of my musical taste. Um, you know, probably the most important name for guitarist is Steve. Have you guys ever noticed that? You guys notice how many guitarists are named Steve? A lot. All right. Like a lot, a lot. Not just like, oh yeah, quite a few, like a lot. Um, so, you know, the importance for Steve for me is, you know, it's probably the most important name in rock music as well as a common thread through, uh, my music history, really. Um, 
You know, there's a, a musician named, a guitarist named Steve who played on the first LP I ever bought, which was Billy Idol's Rebel Yell, I think, in 1984. That was also my introduction to, like, a rock superstar. You know, I probably knew who Billy Idol was before I knew who Elvis was. <laughs> um, my dad liked Billy Idol. He told me that Billy Idol put toothpaste in his hair to get it spiked up <laughs> like that, which I thought was awesome, which I'm sure I, which I'm sure I tried once or twice. Um and uh, Steve Stevens is the guitarist on that, and uh, it's pretty cool, too. He's obviously, despite the rest of the band being kind of a rotating cast, um, I like the fact that Billy's kept him uh, by his side all these years, and he still plays with him as well. And I, I got to see uh, Billy Idol at Rebel Yell, or at Rebel Yell, at Riot Fest um, a few years ago, and it was, it was one of the... Um, the best show, like the most surprisingly good shows I've ever seen. Not that like, I've never not liked the guys. I just wasn't sure like what a Billy Idol show was going to be like in like 2016, you know, or yeah, something like yeah. that when I saw him and he fucking, he ripped man. right on. And Steve Stevens was great too. Yeah. Yeah. They, they just, they just nailed, they, they tore up LA woman as well. But anyway, um, so yeah, Steve Stevens, right? Right early, I get that's my exposure. And he doubled down on the Steve. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, he's like, I'm going all in. Um, you know, fast forward maybe three, four years, and another guitarist named Steve is in a band that really became my first musical obsession. Um, the guitarist is Steve Clark. The band's Def Leppard. Um, and strangely enough, you know, even though the band were superstars by the time my obsession with them began, uh, he was a member that the public seemed to know the least about he was uh you know he, he kept a fairly low profile um and later succumbed unfortunately to his addictions and he died of alcohol related illnesses in 1991 um he always kind of reminded me of jimmy page like a blonde haired jimmy page his hmm. swagger and his stage presence i think is if you watch those old Def leopard videos he's very similar to jimmy page which you know i read up on him and yeah obviously one of his not that that's Sure. A huge surprise that, you know, the guy's going to be influenced by Jimmy Page um, for somebody that starts a band in the early 80s. But um, but yeah, uh, you know, by by the time he died in 1991, you know, I'd moved on to hip hop and Pearl Jam. And, you know, in recent years, I've listened to more Def Leppard and started to recognize his contributions to their greatness. Um, he played both lead and um, uh, and rhythm guitar. Um, Phil Collin is the person most people associate with, with lead guitar with Def Leppard. Um, but yeah, you know, um, they would both switch off and on. Hmm. And I think they're actually one of rock's most underrated guitar duos. Those two, um, I, you know, like Def Leppard, like is something like, it's one of those things where like, obviously I was, I was enthralled by them from like 1987 to like 1989 and then, like, you know, by the time 1991 rolled around, it was so uncool to, like, right. be into them. Um, and then now I've started listening to them again in recent years. And I think they're so good. I mean, I think, like, I, I think they're, like, I even started listening to some of their early stuff. And it's, it's like, it's kind of like a little bit like, you know, like Judas Priest, like Scorpions, like UFO even a little bit. Um, so... So yeah, I've I, I've gained a newfound respect for them and also the playing of Steve Clark. So um, yeah, yeah. Um, they got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame I think last year or the year before, and they 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 more than deserve it in my opinion. Um, another one, and this one's a little bit odd. Um, I'm going chronologically here, so we're probably about 1993 now. Um, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Um, 
I can't say as though I've ever been like a rabid Stevie Ray Vaughan fan. And I know like probably some people it was an audible gasp, I'm sure, you know, like just that, that doesn't mean I don't think he's phenomenal. Um, it's just, I never, I, 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 I'm not crazy about his studio work. I think it suffers from the era that he recorded music in. Uh, whereas I like some, um, of eighties production values. I don't, I don't like his, like maybe it's just, maybe it's just, um, you know, the fact that I've heard pride and joy on WYMG so many times. And I've, I've seen so many shitty bar bands like play pride and joy and look at little sister and Mary had a little, oh, yeah. but, um, over at our friend Adam's house in 1993, I watched a live videotape of C. Ray Vaughn, um, which is also, an, I, I think they released it on the record too. It's the live at the Macombo, which is a small club show with him in double trouble. And that certainly changed my opinion of Stevie Ray Vaughan. Um, and it kind of made me, I think the important thing is it made me realize that musicians could sound totally different and better live. You know, like I, um, you always buy studio stuff first. You always think about, like, I was at a point where I'd been probably about 13, 14 years old then. And I really started to appreciate, like, how different live music sounded. You know, like when I first started, like when you, if you would have played Def Leppard for me, four or five years earlier, I'd been like, oh, I want it to sound like it does on my cassette. You know, mm-hmm. I want the song to sound like that. I don't want them to do anything different, you know? And yeah. this marks the time where I watched that video of Steve Ray Vaughan that I wanted different <laughs> things when a performer played live and I recognized that the, <laughs> the music could be different live and it could be taken out there, it could be expanded. The song could sound different and then, you know, I, I started to appreciate live music more, so... Um, and it, it changed my opinion of Steve Ray Vaughan. Um, and I, I, I mainly do just listen to his live music. I, I don't really touch his studio stuff. I, it just, it's not how I want to hear the guy, you know? So anyway, um, and then, yeah, we're now, we're about at, uh, 1996. Um, I was cruising in my 1988 black Ford Escort. Uh, I believe I had dropped off. Um, my high school girlfriend at home uh, in Cantrell, a near neighboring town. I dropped her off and I had some time before I had to be home. And I was listening to the radio station I just mentioned earlier, WYMG. And they did a show, or maybe they, it still might be a show, um, where they did a show called In the Studio with Redbeard, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys, mm-hmm. you guys are familiar with that. Yeah, nationally uh, syndicated. Yeah. yeah, it's a nationally syndicated show, right? And, um, that year, they were doing a lot of 25th anniversary broadcast of, of um, you know, looking back 25 years later on an album. And it was 1971, would have been, you know, 25th anniversaries in 96. So they were profiling, like, 1971 is probably my favorite year of music. Um, uh, I had heard uh, Aqualung, like, a couple weeks before, and I was like, that made me appreciate Jethro Tull. And then when I was driving home that night... Um, I heard the Yes album in the studio. Uh, and I think they had John Anderson on the show, I believe, or Chris Squire. And um, I, I I had never heard, you know, like it just, it blew my mind, um, particularly hearing Starship Trooper. Um, and I really picked up on the plane of a guy named Steve Howe, who would certainly become, you know, my favorite guitarist named Steve. If I had to pick a favorite Steve, it's him. <laughs> Um, and it was also just, you know, one of my favorite guitarists of, of all time. Um, uh, you know, he 
he's, he's, he's got a classical influence. He's got a jazz influence. Um, you know, he's, he sounds like he can play music that like comes out of Lord of the Rings too, you know, <laughs> like he's just, uh, the guy can really do it all. And, um, I remember, you know, hearing that, um, while I was driving late at night, you know, it's probably like 11 o'clock on a Sunday night or so 10 o'clock on a Sunday night, getting ready to go home, you know, school the next day. And, um, yeah, just hearing the yes album start to finish. I was probably, I probably got home late because like, I, you know, I just, I couldn't stop listening to the album, you know? And I was like, I, I gotta go get this, you know? Like I, I thought yes was the band that sang owner of a lonely heart. You know, I sure, didn't know they right. had this, I barely knew they had this whole other career in the seventies. And you know, obviously, you know, how much I like, yes. So, <laughs> so yeah. So that was, that was important. Uh, yeah. And then, um, in recent years, um, I've mentioned the importance of the Philadelphia music scene and how I think it's produced some of the best rock music of the last 15 years. Uh, you got a guitarist named Steve Gunn, who I think is making great music. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a big reason that, that, you know, Philly is, um, uh, pretty prominent right now. And, you know, there's so many other guys named Steve too. Um, I'll give you, can, how many of the two of you without looking it up can name some other well-known guitarists named Steve? Well, Steve, Steve Hackett. Yeah, rel- relatively, oh, relatively okay. well. Okay. Yeah. Hackett. Hackett's, yeah, Hackett's a big one. Marriott. Yeah, that's, that's, Hackett is the other prog, Steve. Um, Steve yeah, Marriott. Marriott. Yeah, right, I was going right. to say Marriott. Yeah, um, right. Although I think of him as more of a singer, even though he is a great yeah, guitarist. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Um, uh, uh, there, there's a recent artist um, uh, who released a record. Uh, where he plays predominantly uh, guitar instrumentals, and he's liter- and it's literally called "This Is Steve." Um, oh yeah, yeah. I know, I know who you're talking about. No, that's a good record. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I heard as well. Yeah, it's good. Uh, yeah. So hey, yeah. There's, so there's some it, young it speaks guns to out your, there. It speaks to your yeah. point here. Um, I get, there, there's some there's some others that are kind of prog leaning, um, like Steve Morris of yeah. of Kansas and Dixie Dregs. Obviously, Dixie Dregs. That's his best work. Um, uh, Steve uh, Liftker from um, yeah. uh, Toto, right? Um, you've got uh, Steve Stevie, Stevie, Stevie Turner from uh, Mud Honey. Stevie Turner from Mud Honey. Yes, you got you got um, Steve Perry, obviously from Aerosmith. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or no, Joe Perry. I'm sorry, Steve Perry. Jesus Christ! I just said Steven the singer of Journey. Steven Tyler. God, you guys see what I did there? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, there's no guitarist in Aerosmith named Steve. Jesus. Um, Steve Hillich, who was in Gong, which I, if you guys, I don't know if you guys listen to much Gong. I've heard Gong, yeah. Yeah. Um, Steve Rothery from uh, Marillion. Stephen Wilson from um, uh, Porcupine Tree. Steve Vai, right? There's another one. Yeah. yeah. My first set was Eat Em and Smile. You got a guy that is very dynamic that, you know, played with Frank Zappa. But also was kind of hired to sound like Eddie Van Halen, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you know, another early important one: Steve Gaines, Leonard Skinner, um, Steve Miller. Um, there's just there's a lot a, of Steven, Steven Still, Stephen Van Zant, Steve Cropper from Booker T and the Blues Brothers. Um, yeah, Steve Earle plays guitar. So yeah, the most important name in, in rock music to me. So and and also reflects um important milestones in my music list i like it i like it well done there you go my last one tonight i mean i'm gonna 
you know, we could have whole episodes, and we have talked about this band for whole episodes, but I'll just try to keep it short and sweet. And my last one is the good old Grateful Dead. Because without the Grateful Dead, really, I don't know, you know, my musical journey would have been possible. I mean, the Grateful Dead were really the first band I was ever introduced to by my sister, where it was like someone was like, you should listen to this. And so they have just shaped my music knowledge, my music tastes, my, you know, it was a good first band to get into really for the fact that it taught me a lot about just a psychedelic music, B Americana music, songwriting, um, you know, just the musicality of the, the different chord changes and, so, I mean, you know, there, there's there been college courses taught on the Grateful Dead. And so I just, I have to give them a shout out. And I really hadn't on any, I went back and looked and I really hadn't talked about them at all on this list. Yeah. And they've just been in such an important part of my life that I felt like, like I had to give them their due. Right. Right. Like, how often do you listen to them now, Levi? Just curious. Um... You know, I have a few songs on a mix on my phone. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, three or four of my faves that are, you know, diehard faves. But other than that, I mean, I'll put on um I'll put on a live album once in a while. Yeah. Cuz I have some yeah. over the last 5 or 6 years, the different record store days, The Grateful Dead usually release a live show pretty much every record store day. Mm-hmm. And so I have some of those and they're excellent. One of them is from 1990. And it's called um, Wake Up to Find Out. And it's it's basically the era where Branford Marsalis was playing with them. Oh, right. Yeah. And it's a live show with him, and it it's just fantastic. So, I mean, if I do go back to listen to them, you know, it's not super frequently. But like I said, I they were such like the building blocks of like sure. my musical foundation to yep. where they, they've affected my tastes and on on all of it to this day still you know yeah. and there's a uh, i mean it's like i still hover around the grateful dead universe but like i'm nowhere near as deep as i once was obviously into mm-hmm. it um this record so this year record store day due to covid has been split into three different record store days so they're doing that to kind of aid in the social distancing aspect of it Sure. And so the first one is going to be August 29th, so just in about two weeks from the date that we're recording this. And um, there's a 5LP Best of the Jerry Garcia Band Live kind of a thing coming out. And so I may end up getting it just because, you know, like you said, I they're one of the bands where the, the live output is usually always greater than the studio output. Not always. Uh-huh. I mean, there's American beauty and working man's dead and I, there's there. They've, they've got some great studio records. Yeah, too. yeah. Yeah. There are. Yeah. And so, you know, um, yeah, I actually I, like go to heaven a lot too. I oh, think it's, that's one I, of the I ones I have I think it's pretty underrated. Two of the songs record. on my mix are Althea and Alabama getaway, which are yeah. both off that. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, man, I, I, yeah, obviously, yeah, they've, uh, I think that's one of the, if you, for those listening, we did a whole episode on the dead for the anticipation of the Fare Thee Well event, so check that out, but yeah, I, um, 
you know, I, 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 I've gone through periods in my life where I've listened to them very heavily, um, particularly with like my freshman year of college with having a good friend, like introduce me to bootlegs, you know, right. first person that was like, Hey, you got to use max, max XL twos to record these <laughs> concerts. Right. Um, a guy that lived up the, up the, um, couple floors up in my dorm room. Um, and then my wife is always a big fan and I pop them on, on the serious channel once in a while. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of drawn to their eighties stuff a little more mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Well, um, because I didn't the... listen to that. I didn't listen to that at first. I always just right. went to their their late sixties and seven, and then the Godchild, you know, era stuff. Yeah. But I really like the. I kind of like the eighties stuff now, just because it's it's sort of new to me. Well, and they're one of those bands that I've gone back to. Like you said, you go through periods of different yeah. amounts of listening, but they've always been one of those bands that you can go back to at different stages in your life. Sure. And you can kind of get something different out of the songs, which yeah. I always thought was neat. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, yeah as I the songs age, and yeah, you know. Yeah, even if like somebody doesn't like them, I don't see how you can't recognize that they're like one of America's most important contributions to music. <laughs> right? You know? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, just, and yeah, yeah, for everybody that wants to dive deep, that whole episode we do on them is great because we do. We talk about that just because... They were innovators of live sound. Like mm-hmm. yeah. live sound at concerts would not be what it is today without the Grateful Dead. Oh no, oh. Um, and also, just changing your set list every night is a really cool thing to do. I'm glad that some of the bands I listen to, even if they didn't necessarily directly hear it from the Grateful Dead, they they heeded that advice and tried to do a different show every night. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Um, that's. I think that's one of the most important things that they did as well. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good one. <clears throat> Got you, sometimes it's it's funny how you 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 forget to give the shout out to like the most obvious thing. Sure. <laughs> right. Because it's just like the um, it's like the the frequency of the Big Bang that they you know that they look for. It's just always there. It's always ringing, and it just blends in, and you don't think about it. But then if right. you listen for it, then you're like, oh yeah. Uh-huh. Those frequencies that the dead made. Those are pretty great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. All right. So wait, we've got two more to go here. My, my final one <clears throat> is um, uh, very much related and specifically how far rock has come in just 70 years and how much of it is still here. So I was flipping through a photography book by friend of the podcast, Danny Clinch, last week. And uh, came across his photo of Beck with John Lee Hooker, just chilling on a couch in 1996. (laughs) And this scene exemplifies what always astounds me about rock and roll. It is still incredibly young, and we have been unbelievably fortunate to have been born in an era where we walk the earth with and even buy concert tickets to see living legends. But Mm -hmm. I'm not just talking about being able to see guys like Mick Jagger strut across the stage in their late 70s. I mean, don't get me wrong, that's truly awesome in its own way, but rather... I'm most astounded by the evolution of the sound of rock and roll in such a short time. And, you know, if comparing the sounds of Hooker and Beck is any indication, we've witnessed maybe the greatest and most concentrated evolution of an art form in history. And I can't really back up that statement because I'm not an art historian, but just humor me. Um, 
But Hooker released his first record in 1948, a little more than a decade after Robert Johnson passed away, just to give you a little bit of context. And here he is in this photo sitting with one of the most important musicians of the 90s who released the groundbreaking Odelay that same year. And while Odelay's revolutionary sounds and production could easily startle any veteran blues musician, it doesn't take long for Beck and John Lee Hooker to find common ground. Guys, Chuck Berry passed away just a couple years ago. A goddamn pioneer of rock and roll was cruising around the Midwest with me and you for the vast majority of our lives. And Mm -hmm. Berry released Rollover Beethoven in 1956. A mere 10 years later, the Beatles recorded Sgt. Pepper's. 10 years after that, television released Marquee Moon. Not nearly as globally impactful, but you see where I'm going with the evolution thing here. And here, just 40 years after the unbelievably diverse late 70s rock output... Consider all the subgenres, subgenres of rock that have thrived in our lifetime. Alternative, Americana, doom metal, shoegaze. I mean, the list goes on. If you, if you go to Wikipedia, um, it lists more than 250 rock subgenres. And now, accessibility is greater than ever. In the 50s, you needed a few songs, a slick voice, a polished look, and a lot, a lot of luck for anybody beyond the city limits to hear what you had to offer. Over the 60s and 70s, expensive guitar amps and recording equipment were added to the equation. You pair those variables with the ferocious gatekeepers that were record labels and FM radio stations, and your chances of your expensive record actually being heard were all but nil. But, you know, as technology improved in the 80s, equipment got smaller and cheaper. When computer-based recording equipment and the internet took hold in the 90s and 2000s, recording and distribution efforts respectively were nearly flattened. And now you don't need much more, you don't need much principle to start a band, record Mm. your own record, and make it easily accessible to billions. So imagine all the musical talent we never heard in rock's first few decades because some artists just couldn't put all the pieces together. All the songs that never got sung. It, It likely hindered rock's growth if you can imagine rock growing even faster than it did but now a 15 year old with a laptop and a 50 dollar usb microphone can engineer and finance her own debut album a record that could just as easily be influenced by the sex pistols as it is by the sub-saharan rock scene of the past decade the influences and output are all ready for consumption and creation with just the tap of a finger and as a result the new artistic possibilities become exponential We've just seen the tip of the iceberg, and it's a hell of a view, don't get me wrong, but the next 70 years, it's hard to believe, could result in rock sounds unimaginable, yet so easily appreciated by Chuck Berry and Beatles and Beck fans alike. Sure. Yeah, well put, man. It's uh, The fact that we've been lucky enough to even get on a little bit of the ride is uh, is really something, and... You know, you, you talked to Deer about the, at the at the end, kind of you know, sort of how you're optimistic about what's to come. Still, um, I am too. I mean, I, uh, you know, it's easy for me to list my favorite albums, but when when people ask me kind of what's the best song ever written, I'd, I'd be like, you know, I hope it. I hope I hope I I hope I haven't heard it yet. You know, that's what I tell people. You know, I hope I don't. Th- I don't think it's been written. You know, the yeah. so I'm, yeah. I'm I'm optimistic as well. I, yeah. There's um that you, you got to keep reaching for something. You know, so yeah. I feel like uh, yeah, I'm excited. If you if you think about just what's happened over the last sixty years, yeah. and that a, a a kid making music can can take all of that in, and not to mention like you you said, have the technology to to weave it together 
pretty much on their own. Um, yeah, yeah, it's there's there's still going to be some minds that are going to be blown, you know, out there. So yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm hopeful as well. Yeah. yeah. I thought you were going to for sure say the greatest song of all time is obviously American Pie. in the 200 years of american history and you know right 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 right. i remember uh i remember my 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 beloved teacher mr christensen who gets had to i think um mr c like he he played um the billy joel we didn't start the fire you know he's like listen to this it's all of history right here you know like all of american history so yeah i obviously we didn't start the fire is the greatest song ever. Um, what else do i have to say exactly <laughs> good stuff yeah, yeah good one Jonathan. yeah yeah before we dive into our last one really quick I just want to say, uh, since our last recording, we've lost two two monumental Pete's of the music world, and Peter Green, and just uh, the other day, Pete Way from yep. UFO. Yeah, so, just recently. Yeah. 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 Rest in peace, man. Yeah. Just both such those a, guys. Both just mm-hmm. badasses. One of the, one of the, yeah. I think the greatest quotes ever about Peter Green is BB King said. That Peter Green was the only white boy that ever gave him the cold sweats <laughs> when he heard his guitar playing. Nice, oh. well put. Yeah, and and you know, UFO is something I've appreciated more in recent years. I want to read Pete Way's book. I've heard it's pretty entertaining. Oh yeah, I would um, think so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He played a Fozzy too. You know, so yeah, fast way. Yeah, fast way. Wasted. Yeah, yeah. No, um, no. He was he was great. That one. Um, I definitely gotta um, do a uh, some some UFO here. Yeah, here. basically like phenomenon to like lights out are just like pretty untouchable. Those studio records, they're pretty oh, good. Oh fuck yeah, yeah man, yeah definitely. I think then, it's like uh, one of four or five albums between there. With Strangers in the Night too, one of the most oh, underrated. The live, albums, the live yeah. records, one of the best live records of the seventies, right there. Anyway, I digress. Yeah, I can. Talk about yeah, UFO we talk UFO UFO guys right. named Pete. We'll have an episode on guys named Pete. Yes, yes. <laughs> cool. All right. Uh, so here we are. The final at, final item. Yeah. You know, um, Jonathan has suggested the idea of um, we, you know we've got gotten through this list now. Um, all of us could kind of have a shared experience of talking about opening day and record release day. Um, which are you know extremely important to me, but I, I'll kind of let you guys take over here because, like, I I have to admit, record release day doesn't always have the same feeling to me as it used to. Yeah. Um, just that's it's it's been harder when I'm not purchasing something physically. Um, you know, to 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 appreciate as much as I as I as I did. Um, but yeah, God, when it when it when I when it was though, it was it was uber important. You know, it was it was like it was what you looked forward to. You know, it was right? what, oh, yeah. what kept what kept you going. Sometimes. Checking the new releases every week. Yeah, Absolutely. oh yeah, yeah. To see that yeah. calendar, I guess you would sometimes you would even see it in Best Buy at times. They would yeah. be the calendar yeah. for upcoming releases on the big illuminated signs hanging overhead. Right, right. Um, and you know, a lot of times you know you would roll with your friends to get the record, and um, yeah. You know, I, I I also had time then to really let it sit in. You know, I, when Yield came out, I remember that was that was probably one of the best record release days for me. 
I was looking forward to it. I remember just immensely. And I probably listened to it like four or five times the first day yeah. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah. I, I got it, listened to it once by myself. Um, there was a girl I liked a lot in college that, that I took a cruise with her and we listened. I put, I played it for her. And I was like, hey, this just came out today. You know, like, I was all like, this is new, right? I, I was like, God, this is all, a best all, buy all, all this, this happened, like, before 3 o'clock. Like, I went to class. I went to the store, picked it up, listened to it once, give her. And then I went, into my, went over to my friend Tim's house that night and listened oh, to it again. you were a freshman him. in college. I was a freshman in college. Okay, okay, all right. That makes more sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's the one I – that's – there's some others. You know, I remember purchasing No Code on the day it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember – I think i got vitalogy on the day it came out too i think so i got that um, one uh with the, the vinyl came out two weeks earlier yeah i didn't get that I and i was down vinyl. in florida with my buddy and uh we we went to a record store and that was the first time i ever bought a, an album like by my on my own you know i versus was hand delivered to me i think like right and um uh, but we yeah, have vitalogy it came out two weeks prior on vinyl only and then we went to his grandparents place down in florida because we we were in florida and we went to his grandparents apartment and they had a record player where we could play Mm. and so i was in luck um in that sense um so that that's a makes a fairly unique first uh uh record store day release purchase yeah Yeah. yield is the one that stands out to me the most yeah Uh, sure sure i just remember the whole day yeah that's nice except for me to pinpoint one i mean i some of mine were clunkers, you know. I've talked about it in the past. I got Eric Clapton Pilgrim the day it came out. Um, uh, who didn't? Right. <laughs> I remember Aerosmith Nine Lives bought it the day it came out. Um, By Your Side and Lions got both those the day yeah. they came out. Um, I remember my one of my first CDs ever was in 1994. I got a CD player for Christmas, and I think two cds the one for sure was it was a new release that year it was bob seger's greatest hits he had never had a greatest hits on cd or vinyl ever and so in 1994 that came out and i i got it and i'm trying to remember what the other cd i got with it was might have been like george Strait or something (laughs) it was it was in that weird period where my dad was still buying me like country music even though i was still going like towards rock but yeah, um, you know, it, I, I talked in the past about obviously kind of skipping lunch and playing hooky and going to Best Buy and getting releases and stuff. But as far as opening day with baseball, there's just something about the, you know, the freshness of it all. And, you know, sure. it's there's 162 games still ahead of you and anybody has a chance still and. There's just the eternal optimism of MLB opening day is something I think that will always stick with me. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's almost better than the World Series in some regards, you know, obviously unless your team's in the World Series, because, you know, every fan's got like a glimmer of hope, you mm-hmm. know, as well, yeah. you know, like even that, you know, um, yeah, even the Marlins fan can be like, yeah, this might be it, you know, yeah, um, um. But yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's still a special day uh, to me this year. Obviously different, um, 
but but yeah, I know what How you mean. How many opening I've, days have you guys attended? Have you been to never, in person? Never. I've only, I'm a zero. Yeah. yeah, you Jonathan, you neither. Yeah. Last year, twenty I think it would have been twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen. Um opening day was rained out. Mm-hmm. And so they they played the next day and I did go to that. So I guess nice. that kind of counts. That's right? okay. That counts. I mean, that counts. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. So one of the yeah, years I was in Colorado, I, we went to game two of the Rockies. So that was pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. 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 Right. There you go. Yeah. So that was that was yeah, yeah. I did get to go to opening day and it was weird because it was like it, it rained the day before and it even rained a little bit the day I sure. was there. Yeah. Like it was still pretty wet. Yeah. So like it wasn't full, you know. Um just plus, like you know, people had already made plans. You know, like just mm-hmm. it, it, like you know, kind of like the 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 hype around opening day kind of got deflated there, and I, I took advantage of it deflating. You know, yeah. and went to the game the next day. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's it's interesting how where opening day falls because it's you know you have the Mar- you have March Madness right, so basketball college basketball dominates March, and then. Opening day happens before the NBA and, and, and NHL playoffs begin, which is like mm-hmm. a two-month thing. And so it really is the national attention as a whole is focused on baseball for this one day out mm-hmm. of the year. I think more so than the World Series in a lot of ways because I think so. World yeah. Series is kind of it's primarily just the team, the cities that the teams that are playing. Right that are mostly interested but opening like everybody at work knows it's opening day yeah um, totally. while not everybody at work knows it's game seven of the world series and right right and um it's so fashionable too to ignore baseball on national sports talk radio even some of my favorite radio sh- sports radio shows are complicit and the day after opening day, they just move on and like, they won't talk about baseball again until sure. October. Yeah. And yeah. it's, it's unfortunate. So, but as a result, it's just about that one day really. Yeah. And, and you don't get that in the other sports. I mean, like, I guess the first week of football is a big deal, but it's not quite the same stature of opening day. And then like you mentioned, NBA and the NHL, I don't think the season kickoff, even though both right. of those sports are, are arguably probably more popular than baseball right now, at least yeah. basketball is. Yeah. Um, there's still not a lot of hype around the first game. Because I think the they kind of split they, it up. They, they split it up, yeah. They don't have all the teams playing on, yeah. the, on, the, on the same yeah. day. Yeah. So, yeah, opening day is and always yeah, will be Yeah, special. I mean, one of the only sporting events you could kind of even compare it to in the level of hype that surrounds it on an opening would be like NASCAR with the Daytona, the Daytona 500, 500 sure, sort of. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah that, no, that's a good comparison too, because it's also what, what's that's in February. Yeah. So you're getting yeah. through winter. The Super Bowl just finished. And but, yeah, yeah Daytona 500 is usually around the same time spring training starts right yeah. around there. Yeah. So yeah. that's, that's a, you know, you're feeling good then. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think in, in the pomp and circumstance too, because the bunting is out for for the baseball yeah. games and yeah. and the stadiums right. really get gussied up and for the most part the, the stadiums sell out um, yeah and and this will be the, the only game of the yeah. season for I assume the majority of major league parks where the games sell out oh yeah aside from just a handful of teams yeah yeah, yeah. I, I would I would imagine um, I now baseball has 
you know, they've split it up a little bit in recent years. Yeah. Uh, which I didn't, which I, which yeah. I didn't like, yeah. which I don't like. I want everybody on the same. Like I, I want, I want like, you know, 15 first pitches going at the same time. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? I, I, don't, I don't want that soft opening the night yeah. before. Like, oh, yeah. shit, there was like a game last night? Really? Oh. Yeah. I want, them, I want them all at 1 o'clock the same day. You Agreed. know what I mean? 105 the same day. Agreed. Yeah. 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 Well, and it seemed like as a Cubs fan, there shit. was a period of years where the Cubs always were off on opening day and played the second day. Like, like really? their games, huh. yeah. And so, like, or... It seemed like, a, and I think they'd still do this a lot with a lot of teams. Like, the Cubs would play maybe on opening day, but then be off for a day. And then they, yeah, the Sox it's, do it's that because too. the rain out. It's it's a rain out yeah. day, just in case opening day gets rained. Yeah, out. and they, so they yeah, build that, that day always. In. Yeah, that always I thought was kind of weird. Yeah, yeah, that's a safety day. It's like you want to just get into baseball, and you're like, yeah, opening day, and then it's like, oh, they're not playing the next day. The ironic right. thing is that's that's <laughs> going to be like their only day off until spring break or till uh, the All Star break. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so it, in this year, as a result, it really changed because of, of COVID and, and the delay to the start of the season, and and it and it did happen, and you could see just how different it was because of when it was. And, and and what was going on around it, and um, I think it'll make us appreciate it all the more if they are able to start on time next year, and yeah, uh, and uh, we get the we get our rituals back. Yeah, yeah, with some people in the park too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, and, and um, I think it'll be as a result two years probably before you know we have a full park, and it's yeah. whatever April first, and. I, th- I think that will be probably as you know, a, a, like a true, truly like boisterous end. Hopefully, God willing, to the to the to the wrath of of, of COVID, and and um, and you know, we'll ring in the the new season and, and a return of normalcy. Yeah, yeah, that would be God. I hope so, man. I hope uh, I hope I hope you're right. Um, I'm going to end it on that note, guys. Let's let's end it there. Spot. As yeah. as um, let's just all hope things uh, things improve. You know, um, two things that we we made a podcast about. You know, have um, have taken a hit. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, in, in over the last you know four or five months. So so yeah, um, that first concert um, back, that first big ball game back. Uh, it's going to feel really, really good. Um, so anyway, on that note, uh, thanks for hanging with us over this, uh, these, these, well, these hundred episodes and beyond here and, uh, and the net, the countdown that never seemed to end. It was fun though, guys. I, I enjoyed revisiting, uh, some of these topics and, and thinking about how they kind of fit into my life as well. I learned um, a lot about myself. Yes, yes. <laughs> We're better people for this. Um, so, yeah, I want to remind everybody, follow us at Rock in Chew. That's in is in Hot and Nasty, which is a, a great Humble Pie song. Uh, we mentioned Steve Marriott earlier. Um, and uh, also you can listen to us um, on YouTube, uh, any of your favorite podcasting apps, uh, as well as like us on Facebook and follow us on the Twitter and the Instagram at Rock in Chew and visit RockChew.com. All right, boys. Well, on that note, um, we hope everybody has a 
enjoy the rest of the evening and uh, we'll hear from you soon with uh, a whole new slate of topics. Take care. Peace.